Hey everyone, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast, a collaboration between Wired to Hunt and Drury Outdoors in which I, my co-host Matt Drury, and a special guest answer your very own hunting questions. And today, we're actually answering two different listener questions, both related to the task of dealing with a dead deer in the field. And helping us with these questions is Mr. Terry Drury himself. And we cover a lot of interesting things related to gutting deer, what to do with gut piles, the best tools for the job, getting deer out of the woods and back home, and, and lots more things along those lines. So stick around for this one and enjoy. What's up, guys and girls? We are back with another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. And today, we're going to be answering actually a couple really interesting listener-submitted questions about the whole process of getting a deer out of the field and a number of different things related to that. But before we get to that, joining me and Matt today, we've got a very special guest. And Matt, I think you need to do the honors on this one because you know him pretty well, right? I do. I've, I've hunted with him a time or two. This is the guy that introduced me to the sport of hunting. He showed me how to shoot my first bow, shoot my first gun. He was there with me in the tree when I shot my first deer. He is there in the field when I shot my first turkey. It is my dad, old man winner, Terry Drury. What's up, Dad? Hey, hey guys. How we doing? Good. Doing Doing real good. We were getting flack from our viewers because and listeners because they thought you were big timing us (laughs) by not being on the podcast sooner. (laughs) No, I'm just shy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to make sure to milk you for everything you got this time, Terry, because uh, I've been itching to to question you about a few things since we chatted last time. And I think think our questions today are going to be pretty interesting to get your perspective on too. So this is going to be a good one. Mark, before we start... Can you share a little bit about your trip out west? I know you just got back. I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah, yeah. I I could talk for a full hour on it, so I won't. I'll keep it short. But long story short, like you know, I was out in Montana and Idaho. The first part of that trip was a week chasing public land whitetails in Montana. And uh, that actually ended up working out even better than I thought. You know, I was able to find some public land this summer, doing some studying of maps, and picked a spot where I thought I could get away from pressure, thought there was a decent population of whitetails. And, uh, you know... Long story short, within three days, I was able to set up new stands every day, adjust, tweak that setup each day based on what I saw and what I was thinking in wind direction. And night number three, I got a shot of nice mature eight-pointer out there. And um, so that was pretty cool. Awesome, awesome start to the trip, yeah. What was the toughest part of the hunt? Uh, well, might be the toughest part of the hunt was after I killed that buck because we were just talking about this a second ago. I... You know, I killed that deer, and then, of course, you know, you're out there all by yourself, and I'm, so I'm trying to film, I'm trying to photograph, I'm trying to handle the obvious, you know, task of getting this deer gutted and packed way out, and I'm far, far away from my truck. So I'm thinking through all these things, and I'm trying to get everything done before dark, hopefully, and in the midst of all that, you know, I get the deer back to my truck, I get back to camp, I'm sitting there at night, you know, it's like midnight, I'm eating dinner, and I start thinking, where's my bow? <laughs> I don't have my bow. So <laughs> I kind of panicked. I'd lost my bow somewhere in the middle of the Montana wilderness. <laughs> so I went back in the next day. I thought about going out that night because I was so worried. I mean, what am I going to do for the next 10 days on my elk trip if I don't have a bow? Um, so I went back the next day at daylight, and I started just trying to think through, okay, what did I, when was the last time I remember having that bow? And the last thing I remembered was spotting the deer when I finally saw him laying dead on the ground I was like I know I had my bow then so I, I tried to go back to that area and what I ended up doing is when I spotted the deer I just immediately dropped my bow and then ran over the deer 
you know, it was maybe 40, 50 yards away or something, but it was tall grass. So I had not seen it, you know, the day before or after that. So I grid searched the grass and, and there it was. So I had a bow, was able to get to Idaho and elk on okay, and uh, didn't embarrass myself too much. Uh, I suppose it could have been worse. <laughs> You're lucky you found it. That's got to be pretty much like a needle in a haystack, I would say. Yeah, that would have been game over if I couldn't find it. So yeah, chased some elk for seven, eight days out there, out in, out in the mountains, and didn't come together for me, but it was a great, great trip, great experience. Physically and mentally brutal. I definitely was beaten down by the end of it, but uh, you, you never come back from a trip like that not having learned something and really enjoyed it too. So now I'm excited to be back chasing whitetails in the Midwest. Awesome, man. Good deal. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I know I know there's some updates on your end and maybe Terry's end too when it comes to whitetails, but maybe we, sh- we, we wait for next episode for some of that. And uh, should we get to this question of the day? Let's do it. Let's get into the question of the day. This is Shane from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I wanted to first thank you for all the insights that you shared on both the Wired to Hunt podcast and this podcast, and also had a question of etiquette when it comes to hunting. This year I was fortunate enough to kill two deer, one on private land, one on public land. In both instances, I immediately gut the deer where I recovered it. Does it matter where you leave a gut pile, particularly in instances where you're on land that is occupied by more than one hunter? Is it possible that leaving a gut pile somewhere could mess up another hunter's hunt? Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you about this. So that's a good question. And Terry, I'm kind of curious about your perspective when it comes to this whole deal with dealing with a gut pile. Do you leave it where you killed the deer? Do you take it somewhere else? Do you need to worry about it at all? I don't know. What do you think? You know, a lot of times I think uh, gutting a deer, well, number one, it's a new experience every time you gut one. Uh, but I think it's, it's personal preference a lot of times, and it really depends on your parcel of land. You know, if you're hunting public ground or if you're hunting private property, uh, you know, some guys designate a certain spot to take deer to, to field dress them. Other guys will field dress them right where they're at. I know it's a lot harder for one guy. If he's trying to drag a deer out by himself, it becomes quite a challenge. We have the luxury of two guys. We have a, you know, a videographer that's with us all the time. So, you know, it's a little bit simpler when you have two guys and you're doing the dragging. So often we'll we'll pull them out of that area depending on where it's at. You know, you don't want to do it in their bedroom, obviously. Uh, we harvested a doe last night, and Michael and I discussed it a little bit and uh, opted to, to drag the deer out of there, get it out of there as quickly as possible because we were on the edge of a biologic field, the edge of a food plot. And the last thing you want is a group of coyotes or buzzards or, or possums or whatever in there you know, messing around with a gut pile close to the food source. So it really depends on where you've harvested the animal and whether or not you have the physical ability to drag it out of there. I think taking it to another spot is usually beneficial. Have you ever actually seen deer go up to a gut pile and be spooked by it? Or like, I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying with like coyotes or buzzards or something like that, but I've always been curious, will a deer itself negatively react to that? Have you seen that before? I've not seen it, you know, personally, but, you know, just watching their reaction when they come onto a blood trail, you know, they may sniff and, and nose a little while, but they, they, at the end of the day, they really don't like it. Uh, you'll hear them blow just a little bit and then they may, you know, dart back off. So I, I don't think a gut pile is beneficial. If anything, it would be somewhat adversarial. Yeah. I've always thought the same thing. Although someone told me, I got a different perspective. I can't remember who shared this with me, but they said, 
for the night of the hunt, let's say you shoot a doe and it's in like a food source, a big wide open food source, maybe where shot opportunities aren't always easy. You know, they're going to be out of range sometimes, you know, on the edges sometimes. And this person said that if he ever shoots a doe, he'll gutter right away and he'll put that gut pile right within shooting range at like 30 yards or something like that. Because the first reaction he usually gets from a deer with a gut pile is curiosity. So lots of times he says that he would do this and then a buck or another deer would smell it from some direction and come into shooting range just to get a really good idea of what that gut pile was. They'd sniff around it and maybe they would spook. I don't know exactly what his situation was, but he said he'd get increased shot opportunities that night at least when he did that, just playing off of curiosity. That was kind of an interesting thing I'd heard. I don't know if it would in the long run be beneficial, but kind of an interesting idea. That sounds like something you would test in the early season. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and everybody has their own, their own methods and and what have you. I I personally probably wouldn't do that because number one, I wouldn't want to sit there and look at a gut pile all evening. But (laughs) when you think about a gut pile, the amount of effort and physical activity you go through when you're, when you're field dressing a deer, you've deposited a tremendous amount of scent there. Not only the scent from the gut pile, but also your own. You know, the molecules are just spilling all over the ground and you're tromping around, you're moving. And uh, so there's a little bit more than than just the gut pile there when you talk about the human scent that you've deposited there. So you kind of got to keep that in mind as well. That's a great point. I think it, that's that's maybe the bigger thing for me when I'm thinking about it. To your point, I mean, there's so much activity that's going on around there. You've got your pack on the ground, you're kneeling on the ground maybe, or two of you are moving around. That's... That's really compelling right there. I don't know, Matt. Any thoughts on that? Well, you're touching everything around there. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not great at field dressing an animal. It takes me forever. So, you know, you're, you're literally, you got all your stuff spread out. You're touching everything. You're sweating, probably sweating pretty bad. And so to Terry's point, you know, I think you might be doing more damage than you are good. So I know when we're at dad's place, we always go to a certain spot to try to, but to his point, we have the luxury of two guys you know, but we always try to get away for a couple of reasons. One, just to get out of the area, but two, you don't want to disturb, you know, what's going on. You don't know. There might be a, a the buck you're after might be, you know, bedded near there, or you just don't want to disturb it, disturb it further than you already have. That's kind of my thought process on it. Yeah. So tying into this then, I'm curious about whatever, what either one of you think. What about when you shoot a deer how soon do you gut it? Let's say you see it drop and it drops out in the middle of the food source. Would you rather, you know, go down there, gut it, pull it off the side really fast and just try to get out of the way? Or would you let it lay until the end of the hunt and deal with it then? Uh, what do you think, Terry? That truly depends on temperatures. You know, if you're, uh, you know, talking 90 degrees like we've got right now, obviously we've been climbing down early, going to get the deer. We're dragging it out of there as quickly as possible taking it, getting it field dressed, getting it hung up, sprayed out, cleaned up, and getting into the walk-in cooler. And you like to try and do that within an hour, hour and a half, two hours tops, because the last thing you want is that meat to spoil. Uh, now, in cooler temperatures, you can get by with a little bit longer time period, obviously. But uh, the sooner you field dress the deer, the, the really the better off you are. Uh, and we like to try and do it as quickly as possible. We set up the Can-Ams with a, a little carrier on the back that's maybe 14 or 15 inches off the ground, so we literally can throw it up there pretty doggone quick and get it out of there really, really fast. But I like to get them into a cooler as quickly as possible. How many how many does have you guys harvested so far this year? We've uh, got four so far. Awesome. Awesome. 
So when you're doing that, I mean, are you solely on the mission to just go out and harvest those? Because that's kind of the question I always have in my lease. I a have a limited time to hunt and B, I don't think we have a, a, a big deer density. So I I'm always worried. I want to get the practice and go shoot a doe and get meat for the freezer. But I'm also leery of going in there on maybe one hunt for the 10 day period and shoot a doe when I'm, I'm, you know, really trying to harvest the buck. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, there too, it depends on the deer density and the size of your, you know, the property that you're hunting. Because if you've got a shooter in there and he's a daylight walker, and if you're only hunting a small parcel, and I'm saying 20, 30, 40 acres, the last thing you want to do is go in there and stomp it out and, and run him out of there. If you've got a little bit bigger parcel and your deer density is extremely high, which we have here, our uh, buck to doe ratio is so far out of whack, it's not even funny because of EHD has knocked so many of the bucks out, particularly our top end bucks. We've got a lot of small deer, but uh, just no shooters. So we're, you know, kind of dodging around on the perimeter trying to do our doe harvest without doing much damage. And uh, we've been pretty effective at, you know, doing that over the years, but you just got to be conscious that you want to try and do it without doing a lot of damage. So uh, doe harvest, I, I, a lot of guys don't believe in it. We truly believe in it. I think it's a, a, a necessity, a must, you know, taking some of those old barren does out of the herd. They're just another mouth at the table that's adding stress to the overall herd. Uh, you know, some of them are giant alpha does that kind of control everything. And uh, it, also, it's good practice. You know, it's not that easy if the first shot you take is at a giant white, t- you know, big buck with a 180-inch rack on his head or a 140-inch rack on his head. Yeah. So, you know, getting into that muscle memory and knowing exactly what farm you need, uh, I enjoy shooting them. I really do. I, I, I work hard at, at trying to harvest does and keep our, keep our deer density and keep our numbers in check. And with that being said, we participate in Share the Harvest, the HUSH program, Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. Almost every state has got a program set up that you can participate in as well. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing to think about too when it comes to that doe harvest, you know, I always have that same question. It's like, eh, do I shoot does early in the season? Because, you know, I want to fill the freezer, but then I always worry, you know, just like you said, Matt, I worry about spooking the bucks in the area. So I'm always like, do I shoot them early or do I shoot them late? And I've been trying to do a better job of shooting them early because just, you know, the exact reasons that you just said, Terry, um, as long as there's a way I can be on the perimeters and not mess up my best stuff. But another thing, I think it was Grant Woods maybe that I first heard this from and it's, it makes perfect sense. When you have a ton of does on a property, like as you mentioned here, when you've got that buck to doe ratio that's way out of whack, when there's way more does and bucks, when it comes to the rut, those bucks don't need to travel a whole lot because there's does everywhere. It's, there's not a lot of competition, and you're not going to have as active and intense of a visible rut. While if you have a slightly more imbalanced buck-to-doe ratio, you're gonna, those bucks are going to have to move more. They're going to have to work harder to find that next free doe. And if I can you know, improve that just a little bit, I'll, I'll do it. Because I think you know, if I can increase the intensity of the daylight activity during the rut, that can make a huge it can make a huge impact on the future success I could have when I am eventually chasing that buck. So that, I don't know if that's something you ever seen Terry or, or think can make a difference, but it was an interesting idea. I thought. Absolutely. Yeah, we have seen it firsthand. And, uh, in addition to what you just said that, you know, calling doesn't work, rattling doesn't work, running doesn't work because they, they don't, there's no competitive, uh, another, co- another competitor out there looking or searching for a doe. And uh, it just becomes ineffective. So you got to keep that in mind as well. Keeping a balanced herd is extremely hard. It, it's not easy to do. And we try each and every year to do the best that we can. 
And again, it's up you know to each and every person understanding the DNA of their particular parcel where they're hunting. You know, are their numbers out of whack or is it in balance? You know, one to one is the optimum. It's very very hard to achieve that in uh, fair you know wild conditions. But uh, we do each and every year. Mark too, he's very very vigilant about trying to harvest those and get the numbers down and keep that deer density in check. Yeah. How quickly can you actually field dress a deer in? What's the fastest you've ever done it? I've seen you fly doing this. It always amazes me as I struggle with my. <laughs> you know, we've never really put a stopwatch on it. I probably ought to do that one day. I think I can do it in a minute and a half, but I, I, Whoa. I'm fairly certain with confidence I can do it in two minutes easily. <laughs> Mark, you should see it. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, obviously <laughs> they do it a lot and they they, you know, have their own tactics that they use, but it's amazing to watch it in person. I could literally struggle with it for 30 minutes and he'll have it done in, in two. It's, it's <laughs> That's awesome. I always struggle with that first deer of the year. So like we're talking about, I always want to try to kill a deer or doe early just to get that first one, like get it back in my head and the whole flow of it. Because it is always kind of a pain when you've got like your four buddies standing around you waiting to drag it out and you're sitting there fiddling around with a knife trying to <laughs> not spill guts all over the place. Uh, that's no good. But, but on this topic actually, we do have another very related question that I thought we could try tackling in this episode too because it's so tightly kind of similar to this theme. So do you think we should, uh, what do you think about jumping to that question and tackling that one? Absolutely. Real quick, Terry, did you have something to add there? Yeah, I was going to say that if uh, the next doe that we harvest, we'll put a stopwatch on it. And if I do it in under two minutes, I'll have Matt buy my lunch. <laughs> if we do it over two minutes, Mark can buy my lunch. <laughs> I like it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Joe, do you have that second question teed up for us? Hi, my name is Aaron Young from Kansas City, Missouri. My question is, what tips can you offer regarding how exactly to go about extracting the meat from the field in a public setting when neither driving a vehicle to the animal or dragging the animal to the vehicle is possible? I'm taking the challenge of hunting public land for the first time this season. I'll attempt to avoid the public hunting pressure by getting as far as camp from possible and hang and hunt at locations I pre-scouted that look good once I have boots on the ground. Thank you very much, and good luck this fall. So, So, like I just mentioned, kind of similar to what we've been talking about and Terry I'm curious about your thoughts but I want to kind of hop in on this one if you don't mind because I did this exact thing that Aaron you know just shared you know like I mentioned two weeks ago in Montana Um, so I thought it might be helpful I can kind of run through my little story of process of how I dealt with that and and maybe that'll be helpful so you know just like Aaron I was concerned about you know how the heck am I going to get a deer so far deep in this public land all the way back to my truck when I'm all by myself, it's going to be late. I don't have anyone to help me. Um, so I did two things. You know, Number one, I knew that it would be really difficult to pull this sucker out by his antlers You know, half a mile or, or a mile or whatever it's going to be. So I bought a sled. Um, I thought that might be the most portable tool I could use to more easily get a deer out. You know, Anything to reduce that friction on a deer is going to help that drag out. So I thought, okay, something super portable I can throw in my truck and drive 2,000 miles with. So I was going to buy just like a $10 little like plastic toboggan type deal, but I ended up finding something made specifically for this. It, I think this was called the Deer Slayer or something like that. There's several different brands that have something along these lines. It's basically just a thick, hard piece of plastic that rolls up. So it's basically a roll of plastic, and then when I killed my deer, I hiked back to camp, got my little deer sled, I got uh, my 
my knife, my skinning knife, I got a pelvis saw, and I like to usually bring just a little garbage bag and like paper towel. Um, just personally, I like to avoid getting blood all over all of my stuff for the rest of the trip. So that's what I packed back to the deer with me. And then this little sled, it, it, unro it unrolls, you roll the deer onto it. So now this roll of plastic is now laid out flat. And then you just take some rope and lash this plastic up on all the sides. So now it's like a deer burrito kind of. You've got the, the tortilla is the plastic sled around it and the deer is in the middle. And then you just attach a pull rope to it. And yeah, that helped a ton. Um, a, a sled, like a real plastic sled, that might have been even easier. Um, and of course, if you can get a ATV or something like that in there, that's the best. But that worked pretty well for me. Um, I was able to get it out there, I don't know, hour and a half or two hours maybe. Uh, I sweated a lot. I struggled a lot. I cursed a few times, but I got them out. So that was that was what I did. It sounds like you went all Dexter on that deer. <laughs> Showtime show Dexter. Yeah. So that's what I'm picturing here. That's kind of what it looked like probably if someone was watching over my shoulder. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you guys have any other tools or tips for getting deer out of the field or dealing with that kind of situation? Well, we, you know, fortunately we had the luxury of, of, uh, having a second person, you know, with a videographer, it just makes it so much easier, whether it be a doe or a buck or whatever. Uh, and depending on whether or not you field dress it, you know, at the spot that you make the harvest or whether you take it to another position, if you can load it onto a can am or something on the back, we've got a little carrier that's just 14 inches off the ground and it makes it extremely easy to get them out. Years ago, it wasn't like that. You know, we were just like everybody else. We had to drag them and, and uh, do all those things. But again, we were two guys. And one of the things that we used to use pretty regularly was a body harness. We would take that body harness that had a, uh, a long rope that would go around the animal, and you'd be able to pull him forward if it went around the head of a doe or even the antlers of a buck. You could literally drag it. Uh, the, the part when you got to a creek or something, if you had help, or if you didn't have have help, it would it would be a challenge. Obviously, if you were going down, it was easy. Going back up the other side was always pretty tough. So I know a lot of guys if they're going to do that public hunt and they're going to try and get a big deer out of there, it's not uncommon to have to quarter one. It's not too indifferent from an elk or a, a big mule deer or something. But most guys don't go to that effort. Usually, they'll either find help or go get somebody. And I know depending on where you're at, like Mark, if you were out in the middle of nowhere you weren't about to find somebody just to come help you drag a deer out. No. Uh, so I think your little uh, deer burrito is a pretty good idea. I like that plastic sled idea. That one that one would probably create less friction than uh, even taking the body harness and dragging a deer on the ground. I, I like that idea. Yeah, it would have been great if I had the body harness with the sled. That would have been probably the ticket. Because yeah. the, the one issue with my burrito was that the hand pull rope was just too thin and it just absolutely tore into my hands. So I had to take off like my outer layer jacket that I had in my backpack and wrap it around my hands and kind of create a handle. But almost if you could either do a harness or like get a ski, you know, like a ski handle that you'd be water skiing with and attach okay. that, that would work really well. Um, you know, I think when guys set out to hunt, maybe one of the things that some guys do as far as preparation is concerned, they go the extra effort and they think about having that bone saw and having a sharp knife and having their tags and having everything they need to do exactly what you're talking about. But being able to get that rig uh, set up would be extremely crucial. You know, the, in their mind, they're, all they're thinking about is killing an animal. The last thing you think about is getting him out of there. Uh, but the guy that's most prepared and thinks about that, particularly with that little sled burrito and having the proper handle on it, 
would be the the ticket, you know. So preparation is is worth an awful lot of sweat droplets. Oh yeah. Have either of you guys tried the the carts, the game carts? I've never used one of those, but I know some people do. I have never. I've seen those the most. I, it's it's similar to what you're saying about the burrito or in the sled. I mean, it's it's kind of like a wheelbarrow slash uh, you know heavy appliance cart. Um, but that may be, I was actually speaking with dad about that and he was like, that might be tough to, you know, uh, depending on the terrain you're going on, that might be tough to actually pull or push that thing out of there, you know? Right. So if you're hunting in and around tillable areas where you can get along a field edge or something, I think they would work fantastic. But if you're in some really, really mountainous or hilly terrain and you're going through some big crevasses or deep ditches it's it's pretty tough road i think dragging would be a little better but we tried one years ago mark had one that we used to try two guys it was it was manageable but one person it'd be kind of tough doesn't tommy have one of those i swear i saw those saw that i think jim's got one yeah (laughs) maybe if you're big like that it'd be a little more manageable well and he's got two big brothers that can help him too chuck and randy yeah He's probably got us beat on the whole physical aspect of getting it out of there. <laughs> what about what about uh, knives or tools like that? Do you guys have any specific style or even brand or anything like that that works really well? I'm just kind of as we're talking about this kind of stuff, it's always interesting to see if there's a specific tool that you like just with that whole gutting skinning process. We'll probably get you know we'll probably get flack for this, <laughs> but Outdoor Edge is a sponsor. Shameless plug here, but they actually got this cool knife where it, it's a flipping, is it called a flipping zip dad? I think it's something like that mm-hmm. where the one end of it, well, you got this kind of the saw end, but then the other end flips out and it's got like a hook where you can get up underneath the cape and, and it helps make the gutting process a lot easier. I don't know. Have you even used that before dad? No, I'm still using one of the original knives they sent because I, I like using that knife. I sharpen it each and every time, but Man, I just I've gotten so accustomed to that, and then I use a bone saw as well. But I, I kind of went one extra step with the bone saw. I bobbed the end of it on a grinder because I don't want to be cutting some of those uh, intrals in there that you just don't want to get into, and uh, I don't want to try and make a mess. But I I literally open it up and I cut that pelvis bone out completely so that whenever you take the the diaphragm out, you can pull the whole, you know, and you cut the esophagus and you go down the sides by the diaphragm, you literally pull that whole thing out and it is clean as a whistle. You don't get too much in there. Uh, As long as you bob the end of that saw and you don't get into any of those intrals when you're, when you're, you know, cutting that pelvis bone out. Yeah, that's the trick. I, the saw that I use, I, I cannot remember the brand of it, but it's the it's the pelvis saw that actually has a blunt plastic end on it to avoid that exact thing you mentioned, Terry. I don't know if you guys have seen that, um, but that seems to do the trick pretty well. Um, I got another question about your gutting technique. I always used to start, when I used to start gutting, I would start down, you know, I'd deal with like the, you know, the genital region and I'd work my way up, but... I recently saw someone who would start the opposite way. They'd start up by the sternum because they could get the knife in there a little bit easier without worrying about popping the gut or doing anything like that. Um, I don't know. How, how do you go about that? Is there anything you've done to just you know improve that process? I always start at the lower extremities because I just had so much good luck going up rather than coming the other direction. Uh, so I, I think again, it's personal preference and guys that have, you know, field dressed a lot of deer, everybody's got their own style. I know Joe Schultz, one of our team members, he's a pretty avid, uh, field dresser. 
I've seen him in the field on numerous occasions, and it don't take him very long to field dress one either. So everybody does it a little bit different, and our technique is certainly not the final word, but uh, I know what works for us, and I, I usually start on that low end and go up. And I'll, I'll, once, I get, once I get the uh, pelvis bone cut, then I immediately cut up through the rib cage, and I go pretty far with the, with the dough. But it just makes it so much simpler when you cut the esophagus and you get both sides of the diaphragm and pull it out of there. It just, it really, really goes pretty fast. On that flip and zip, it kind of has what you're talking about, Mark, so that you don't, you know, you know, get into something that you shouldn't. It's kind of got like a curved end that right. allows you to hook and go up without, and it's smooth on the one side, yeah. you know, sharp another. It's pretty slick. It's a neat deal. Yeah, I've seen those gut hooks. I've never used them, but I've always meant to try it out. Um but I need to because that that is my least favorite part of gutting a deer is just the worry of breaking through the stomach and you know having all that stuff come out. So I'm always so paranoid, you know, pulling up the the diaphragm or whatever it is and trying to get underneath that. And I use um, I just got a random kind of hunting knife. Then I use a Havilon sometimes uh, with those replaceable blades. It's pretty nice just to keep it sharp. But the the issue with when you have a super sharp knife like that that doesn't have the gut hook like you mentioned is it's just so easy sometimes you want a sharp knife but sometimes it's so sharp that it just slides right in and into stuff you don't want it to sometimes so that's the trick that experience I guess is is the best recipe to to avoid that now, for the the pelvic bone dad haven't you guys like in the late season when you're having your do, your annual doe hunt and your construction guys come out haven't you guys used something like a sawzall before as well to make the yeah. process quicker. Yeah, yeah, a little reciprocating battery-operated saw makes it extremely fast. I know Mike Joggers and I, we had, uh, oh, I remember maybe 10 guys here doing a doe harvest one year, and we ended up with something like 22 or 24 does. And the two of us, Mike and I, ended up field dressing those 22 or 24 does, whatever it was, in about 45 minutes, every one of them. And we had some help. You know, there were guys dragging them and what have you, but we had a reciprocating saw, and, and one guy was using the sawzall, and, Another guy using an outdoor edge knife, and we just went right through them. That's one of those deals where you just stay out of the way, boys. <laughs> Let those old men do the work. <laughs> You're a smart man, Matt. <laughs> we just get in the way, believe me. <laughs> so what about that final step in the process? And I know this is dependent on weather, um, but I'm just kind of curious. Typically, do you have like a walk-in freezer or something, Terry, that you put these deer in afterwards? Or are you taking them to a processor right away? Or do you like to let your deer hang? Uh, I don't know. What's your typical process once you get them back home? You know, we're set up here, and, and a lot of guys have that. If they've got a man cave or a barn or some type of shop or whatever, they may have a, uh, you know, whether it be electric or hand crank to get them cranked up. And I always hose them out. I want to make sure they're spotless before we take them into the cooler. And yes, we do have a walk-in cooler. You know, we you check that temperature on a daily basis to make sure the compressor's running. And uh, I'm really, really adamant about taking care of the meat. I know I've seen guys haul them around the back of a pickup and I just, I just have never been able to stomach that. I, I want to make sure that I get it cleaned right away, get it hosed out. I want all the blood out of there and, and anything that might've spilled over when you were field dressing it. I like it where it's spotless. And then I'll take it into the walk-in cooler and make sure that that meat stays chilled for oh, a few days, two or three days anyway. Uh, whether they're going to share the harvest or whether we're going to go ahead and process them ourselves. Because with the construction guys, we like to you know, have deer chili all winter long. We like to do tacos and meatloaf and hamburgers and whatever else. So uh, we'll usually have four or five processed each and every year. 
And uh, as long as we can continue eating the venison, why, there's no reason not to continue harvesting the does. The best part of the whole process, though, Mark, is when we're spraying out the deer, we got it hung up, and we're spraying it out. That's when we get some adult cocktails and we get to uh, enjoy and you know celebrate the hunt that we just had. That's can kinda, we say that? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is podcasted. This is oh. online. We can say anything. This is the wild west out here, Terry. <laughs> well, we have a we have kind of a little ritual that we go through. The moment that we get her, you know, hung up and we get her sprayed out and she's spotless, you know, we want to make sure that she drip dries for a couple minutes. Then we usually have at least one cocktail. At least one. I love it. Well, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is making me hungry and thirsty. There so, <laughs> is, there, is there anything else you guys think we need to cover on this topic? I, I will say that I, field dressing is so important. And, you know, we've been to a lot of different processors during the deer season and watch guys bring deer in. And, and uh, I really wish some people would spend a little more time and be a little more careful about field dressing an animal because I think it's so important as far as the taste of that venison later on. The last thing you want to do is miss a few glands or, or let some parts in there that, that were supposed to come out. And uh, I know when you're field dressing a buck and you want to try and mount that deer, you know, you really don't want to go up any higher than that brisket bone. Well, to be able to get that heart and the esophagus out You've literally got to almost crawl up inside there and uh, get your knife in there. You got to be careful so you don't cut a finger off. But uh, more often than not, I think some things get left up in there that shouldn't be. So guys just need to spend a little bit more time and be a little more uh, vigilant about trying to get their deer cleaned out properly. Well, and to Mark's point a while ago, when you were talking about you don't want to get your clothes all you know bloody for you know what in general you just don't want to get your clothes all bloody a lot of times we wear and you can find these at well actually i just picked some up at walmart the other day that that they actually make a field dressing kit but where they make the latex gloves that actually are plastic gloves that go all the way up to your shoulders and those make things a lot easier you don't have to completely disrobe you know to (laughs) to get up in there and worry about getting all your clothes bloody i mean you could just roll those things up and then usually they're they're pretty bulky so we'll put latex gloves over the top of those to kind of make make it all a little bit more tight so you can actually feel around and see what you're doing but um that helps the process tremendously yeah that's it's it's especially in the situation like aaron was in if you are maybe far from home maybe like i was i was camping you know i didn't have access to a washing machine or anything so in that type of situation having gloves and stuff like that would have been really nice just to avoid that additional mess that's harder to clean up when you can't get back home and and deal with stuff in that way so i uh i've used those i get i get flack from my buddies sometimes they think i'm a little girly if i'm using the gloves but sometimes they're handy (laughs) i was even gonna say that i said i'm sure we're gonna get crap over this but realistically like i don't care to have blood all over my clothes i know we can wash them and we wash them but if you can save yourself the trouble why not go through an extra step i mean i that's just me personally. I don't know. I've, but I've seen Dad and Mark use them for years now. Yeah. You know, no shame in that. <laughs> you know, and I, I think some of our uh, reservations, be, and it's never been proven, but with EHD and CWD, you know, if you get some open cuts or wounds on your hands or your or your wrists or whatever, the last thing you want to do is get get you know some blood against it. So I'm as much about watching it because of some of the diseases they may be may be carrying as I am about getting blood all over my clothes, because usually I'll take the top shirts off or jacket or whatever. And exactly what you said, Matt, I use, I'll use use the big tall gloves and the latex over that, and I carry rubber bands in my pack as well. It's light, 
you know, it's not any added weight. So why not just go all the way up to your shoulder, put the rubber bands on and you're, you're good to go. And on those bucks, it's a, it, it just makes it a lot, you know, cause you do have to go up in there so far. I mean, you, you'll get up to your biceps and your shoulder. So it just, it just makes this process a little bit easier. For sure. And we're pretty built, you know. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, maybe, we uh, <laughs> we should probably wrap this sucker up. So this is, I had a blast. I'm glad you could join us this one, Terry. And um, really quick, before we shut it down, for everyone listening or watching, I just want to remind you guys that we would love to answer your own question on one of the upcoming episodes. So if you head to wiredhunt.com slash 100% wild, you'll see all the instructions for how to submit your very own voice question. And uh, please do that. Please follow us on social media and everything. And of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And then definitely head over to the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel to get access to the video version. And Matt, any updates on your end? Yeah, as we, as you're over there on the YouTube channel, make sure and subscribe to it. We have uh, weekly updates. We're starting now that we're getting into the hunting season and we're done with our television season. We're starting to do more and more original hunts. So, you know, the Jury Outdoors team was out all last fall and we had all these guys killing great deer. And since we've done away with the DVDs, we're actually starting to edit original hunts that are going to be on DOD TV on YouTube. And it's free. It's, you know, it's easy to check out on your smartphone or your computer. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. And as always, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, juryoutdoors.com. Make sure and follow the journal this fall. We're going to hopefully see some big deer dying. And uh, we're doing some pretty cool stuff, Facebook Lives. And I just want to hope, hope to see you guys follow along. For sure. And Terry, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, guys. Hey, I appreciate it. And I want to make sure that everybody, if they're climbing a tree, make sure they got that safety harness on and make sure they're using the safety line when they're climbing. Great advice. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks, guys. See ya.